We're living on the edge this week, sharing some of the most intense and jaw-dropping stories we've heard from our guests. The craziest stunts, near-death experiences, we've got it all. From surfing star Laird Hamilton. What's the closest call you've ever had? To which thing? Dying? Uh-huh. I've had a lot of chances to die, for sure. To billionaire philanthropist and adventurer Richard Branson. Um, I knew this was the last you know, few moments of my life. And jackass star Steve-O. I was under the impression that that my job that day was to get bitten by an alligator. Plus, you'll hear from Rob Deerdeck, Travis Pastrana, and the late Nikki Lauda, among others. Get ready for an adrenaline boost with this special edition of the In-Depth Podcast. We begin thousands of feet above the ground with no rope and no harness. That's where Alex Honnold sets himself apart as one of the world's best rock climbers. The Sacramento, California native is the first to free solo El Capitan, the 3,000-foot wall at Yosemite National Park. While training his body, Honnold also has to train his mind, which includes visualizing what it would be like to fall to his death. I mean, is that weird? Do you not do that? <laughs> well, I'm not a pro climber either, so no. But I like, I mean, haven't you ever, like when you're driving, haven't you ever thought about what it'd be like to just like veer into one of those little divide things on a highway and just like have your car explode or something? I Surely mean, you've thought the, about it. Y- yeah, I mean, or like if you're on not, a single lane with, freeway going not super with fast. As much detail is. I think it's important to, to like, to yeah, to actually think it all the way through. It'd be worse to have never thought about that and then suddenly be in the position and be like, holy sh**, you know. If the idea of falling to my death is like insurmountable, like if I can't get past that fear, then like I probably shouldn't be up there. One of your close friends did tell me that probably half of your friends and family think you'll end up dying young. I don't know, I don't know if that's true. You don't think so? I don't know, I mean, maybe, well maybe they all keep it, like when I leave the room, they're all like, thank God he hasn't died yet, you know, but I think it's like pretty chill. None of the family's ever been like, we're worried about you, or like, you know, this is, I don't know. But how do you view death? I think because of the stuff that I'm doing, because of the soloing, because of the climate, I think that it's put everything in perspective where it's like death is the only thing that's like truly significant. Um, or maybe, I don't know, that sounds a little morbid, that's maybe not correct, because I'm sure like at some point if I have a family or something, then you know I'll probably think that like my family is like as significant. In South Africa, just outside Pretoria, Kevin Richardson has made a name for himself as the Lion Whisperer. With his foundation aimed at preserving habitats and ending cruel hunting practices, the self-proclaimed rebel conservationist has taken matters into his own hands by establishing his own sanctuary. The lions there have been under Richardson's careful watch since they were cubs, but don't let the friendly interactions belie the deadly nature of these animals. When I pressed about the inherent dangers, Richardson mentioned a familiar face. So what makes Alex Hanold think he's different? Uh, I mean, I literally... (laughs) You interviewed him. I asked him the the same question. You asked him the same question. It's just a question that any person who does something extreme, um, you're always going to get the normal person looking at them as if they're nuts. And we don't look at it like that. More people die um, from dogs per annum. More people die from being killed by cows per annum from horses, horse riding. We can even extrapolate it to driving in cars because your chances of dying are very, very high. Um, So we've been conditioned to believe that cars are okay because they're necessary evil. Whereas we don't think it's okay to do what I do because we feel it's not totally necessary. 
And I suppose my wife understands that she would be the first one to say to me, you've got two kids, why are you doing this? You know, but she also would be the first one to understand that if you told me to stop, um, it would be like you cut a piece of my heart out because I'd rather die living than die not living. A picture might be worth a thousand words, but just how good is the story those words create? Premier wildlife photographer Paul Nicklin has plenty of mesmerizing stories to tell in his mission to bring awareness to the effects of climate change. Nicklin risks his life on a daily basis to capture the best shots possible, even if it means going up against a charging 8,000 pound elephant seal. So I'm, I'm with this boulder hiding behind it and he sees me and I'm just like, oh shit. And he lunges at me in this head and I'm looking in his mouth and as he tries to bite down on me, all I can do is shove my dome inside his mouth and I can see his big teeth and he's trying to bite me. He reared up to 10 feet high and just threw himself at me and I just got out of the way of that and I started, you know, my story, I was like, ah! I was screaming like, boom, take another hit from him. And finally my, my guy I'm working with saw I was in trouble and he came running down the beach and he distracted. He just came out and was waving at it, turned on him for a second and I, crawled out of the beach and just again, bad decision, my fault, not, not the fault of the elephant seal, just I made a stupid decision. To what extent do you think when your time comes, it ends up being on a shoot? I, all the 20 lives that I've burned up, I feel like, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't again say I'm invincible, but I'm to a point where I've reeled myself in a bit and um, I feel like I'm good to go. You know, I don't think it's, gonna happen. I mean, if I die doing what I love doing, then, then so be it. You know, it's, it's the journey I'm on and I know that I need to stay alive if I'm gonna keep telling these stories. Travis Pastrana, the nearly 20-time X Games medalist, found his calling at a young age. At 14, he was already a world champion. At 23, he landed the world's first double backflip. And he was even crazy enough to do a trick with me riding on the back of his bike when we met up in 2011. It should come as no surprise that the action sports star idolizes the legendary Evil Knievel, even paying tribute by replicating his audacious jumps. What's going through your mind right before you do a dangerous stunt? What are you thinking about? You know, the, the moment after preparation and before the conclusion is the most intense, the best, and the scariest moment that you'll ever have, and for me, that's the greatest moment, that's the moment I live for. It's when you're sitting up there and you're nervous, but you decide then, am I gonna follow through or do I need more practice? And if you decide to follow through, all fear goes out and that's, that's kinda cool, it's a good feeling. You mentioned you're scared to death. Interestingly, you said the guys that are fearless never make it because they're either injured or dead. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's a, a bit, bit harsh, but yeah, I mean, I said that because you know, everyone says you have to be fearless to do these, these sports. That's got to be the common denominator, but... It's not. It's not. These guys that are your top action sports athletes, they're professionals. They step by step. They know what they can do. They know their abilities. And yeah, we overestimate our abilities. We're overconfident at times, but, you know, you analyze the risk and you say, this is worth it. But then, you know, as, as a crowd, you only see that final step. And if they make it, oh, well, obviously they, they practiced or they got lucky. And if they didn't make it, oh, well, they're just crazy and nuts. But Really, there's a lot that went into it that you didn't see. From the land to the sea, and the greatest big wave surfer of all time, Laird Hamilton, 
Never interested in pro competitions, Hamilton instead focused on conquering waves previously thought to be unrideable. He successfully surfed on waves 70 feet high, and on August 17, 2000, in Tahiti, Hamilton defied the odds by riding what's considered to be the heaviest swell ever, one that would later be called the Millennium Wave. Explain the like mental conflict you were having with yourself as you're on riding that wave. I had an instinct to jump off, and then I and then I was like, yeah, but if I jump off, then I can't make it. Like, let me be knocked off, let me fall off, but not of my own accord. Don't jump off. And uh, and if you jump off or get knocked off, you're dead anyways. It would be bad. Yeah. Why were you overcome with emotion when you got done? It was my life's dream. Like I wasn't, you know, at that, up until that point, it was it wasn't so clear like what I'd been doing, and and when I when I was able to survive that I think my I think a lot of it had to do with it. just my body was really happy that I made it I was like yeah you you, <laughs> you made it and you weren't plastered all over the place and so it was a little I was thankful what's the closest call you've ever had to which thing dying uh-huh I've had a lot of chances to die I mean listen I've had moments in a lot of different ways you know I've been lost at sea where I thought that was it um, I've, I've fallen in a cornice on a giant glacier in Russia. I thought that was it. Um, I've been stuck in the bottom of a waterfall uh, in, uh, in Oregon and pinned on a rock for a while. thought that was it. Um, I've been held down by a giant wave. thought that was it. Um, so I have a pretty good relationship with what it feels like to be at the spot where you're going to go, well, this is it. And then it's not it, and you're thankful. Best known as a TV personality and host, Rob Deerdeck set numerous world records during his pro skateboarding career. He's no stranger to stunt work, once being attacked by a tiger and bitten by a shark. But when it comes to closest run-ins with death, first on the list is getting caught underwater trying surfing with Laird Hamilton. That was the only time that I really almost died, right? I, I'll tell you what's great about that is gnarly people like Laird Hamilton, right? They, they're lacking, there's a self-protective gene that you have that most people instinctually self-preserve so they have they don't get scared or they get super scared and protect themselves he doesn't have that right and the problem with people like that is they think everybody else can do things that they do how long do you think you were down for i don't know it felt like half hour uh, it was probably like a minute did, did you think that was it 100 percent. like because i could have no oxygen left and just finally like like went to pass out and popped up when I, when I went to pass out. It's trippy. Stuntman and comedian Stephen Glover, better known as Steve-O, has made a career out of putting himself in ridiculous situations. The jackass star once stapled his own scrotum to his leg. That incident got him arrested and slapped with an obscenity charge. As for Steve-O's more tasteful stunts, I, I want to run through uh, some of your notable stunts over the years okay. and just get you to recall what you remember from each one. Um, piercing your cheek with the fish hook. So yeah, we put the hook through my face again and we cast me out and this time uh, a mako shark was coming for me. And so I'm like, like, I like jerk. And in that sort of jerking motion, I accidentally kicked a mako shark in the face. <laughs> Which I suppose saved my foot. <laughs> what about walking over the tightrope 
over an alligator pond with raw chicken in your yeah. underwear? I, I was under the impression that that my job that day was to get bitten by an alligator. I kind of thought that was uh, the thing. I, I, and so, like, what a treat that that got to be, like, you know, arguably an iconic jackass moment. And uh, I didn't get hurt at all. Uh, the porta potty slingshot. I have this like super irrational fear of roller coasters and bungee jumping and um, certainly skydiving. And so, like, if anybody was going to get in a porta potty and be catapulted like with bungee cords like up into the sky, like I I'm the one that's going to react the most. Mm -hmm. I, like having just gotten sober, like I felt really strongly that I've survived enough at this point in my life that like dying over a stunt would be disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like death and paralysis were like off the table for me, but anything else I'm in. And somehow there's a company, I think in Los Angeles, that will sell you as much dog poo as you want. And so they bought enough dog poo to fill a porta potty. And uh, and that's what that's what it was. It was dog. <laughs> pretty classic. Sir Richard Branson's definition of adventure is likely very different from anyone else's. In 1991, the business magnate and humanitarian became the first to cross the Pacific Ocean in a hot air balloon, traveling at speeds greater than 200 miles an hour. Four years earlier, his trek over the Atlantic proved its own challenges. Branson was left alone after a failed landing and mechanical problem caused his pilot to jump from the balloon. He threw himself out of the uh, capsule into the sea. And because his weight had gone and, and he wasn't a light, a light man, the, the balloon just soared, soared back up into the air, um, you know, 10,000, 11,000, 12,000 feet through the clouds. And I was standing on top of the balloon as it went up. And, um, I'd only just learned to fly a balloon three weeks before, and there was, you know, the, the, my, my experienced balloonist was now no longer with me. I didn't think I had a lot of chance of survival, so I, I wrote a, um, a, a, a short note to Holly, Holly, Sam, and my wife, and uh, telling them how much I loved them. And um, then I put my parachute on, um, put a life vest on, climbed back on top of the capsule, and prepared to jump. And I knew this was the last, you know, few moments of my life. And, um, and I decided just to, you know, before I jumped, you know, just to have another five minutes of life. And as I was climbing back out of the capsule, I looked up and I, and I saw the balloon and I thought, screw it, I've got the biggest, you know, the biggest parachute in, in the whole world right above me. The balloon is the parachute. What on earth am I doing? And I just started burning um, and, and taking the balloon down towards the sea. Just before it hit the sea, I threw myself off the capsule, um, away from the capsule, and the capsule hit the water, and then the, the, whole, the balloon, without my weight, you know, soared back up to 10,000 feet, and, and there I was in the sea. Um, but I am a lucky, uh, a jammy bastard, as they say in England. Um, I had arrived in the sea, and a military navy helicopter exercise was going on, uh, at exactly that time, and one of those helicopters saw me jump, and, um, and within four or five minutes, there was a helicopter dropping a rope down to me to, to hold on to.
The late Nikki Lauda once asked, what would life be like if we only did what is necessary? The Formula One driver brushed off any talk of racing as a needless risk, using his unmatched determination to win three F1 titles. But he's perhaps best known for his miraculous comeback in 1976, after a fiery wreck left him with serious lung damage and severe burns to his head. If I look through the rest of my life like this, what are you going to do? So, I had an accident, I lost my ear, I look like this, thank God I'm alive. I accept it. This is the way it is. I always knew how dangerous it was right from the beginning. I was not surprised to have an accident, but I was happily surprised. It sounds funny now that I'm still alive. Really? So, yeah, because I knew that what I was putting myself into. I saw every year one or two guys getting killed. So this was my world. So my accident, I was lucky, I was alive. So therefore I didn't have much problem to decide to go back, to say, take the same chances before, because I knew how dangerous it was. It was not that I was put something into which I didn't know what it was all about. Mario Andretti holds the distinction of being the only driver to win the Indianapolis 500, Daytona 500, and the Formula One World Championship. The sport was much more treacherous when Andretti circled the tracks in the 1960s and 70s, with as many as seven drivers dying on the job in one year. The sport uh, was um, dangerous to the point that, um, you know, during a driver's meeting, you look around, you know, and you said, you know, I wonder who's not going to be here, you know, like the, at the end of the season or whatever. You accepted that because that was the norm. Uh, it was just one of those terrible things. And, and this is why I think as drivers, we, uh, we got smarter in the sense that we started uh, looking at this thing in a different way. But holding back or being uh, sort of uh, fearful of something happening uh, could be more dangerous than anything because then you become hesitant. And, um, and so again, you just have to have a mindset that uh, just uh, carries you in a positive way and say, I'm gonna be in it. I mean, that's it and hope that it's not my turn. Hopefully that got your blood pumping a bit. If you're hooked, you can watch more from these featured guests on our YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And if you're feeling extra generous, please drop us a rating and review for this podcast. It's a gesture that goes a long way on our end. Thanks again for listening.